Hey everyone, I'm John Steele, and this is After Four, a podcast for InterVarsity alumni. Life after college is hard, and even a great experience with your InterVarsity chapter doesn't shield you from the challenges of transition. As we hear stories from real alumni learning how to make it in their post-InterVarsity reality, my hope is that this podcast will offer some encouragement, a few laughs, and even some hope for the future. This is After Four, and these are your stories. Well, hello there. Here we are back for another episode of After Four, the podcast for InterVarsity alumni. I'm John Steele, and I'm glad you made it. And a special welcome to any new listeners from the class of 2022. You're about to embark on quite an adventure, and we're here to help. In fact, today we're starting a six-week mini-series that's just for you, class of 2022, and it's called... Are you ready for this? How to be the post-college goat. That's right a mini-series that also features this podcast's first-ever sting called How to Be the Post-College Goat. And one more time, just in case you missed it. How to Be the Post-College Goat. (laughs) Oh boy, and for any of you who are still listening after that, during this six-week series, we're going to discuss things like finding the church that's right for you, applying for a job and nailing an interview, keeping a job once you get it, and making sound financial decisions. After that, we'll take a short break for a couple of weeks, but then we'll be right back with more fantastic content. Today, though, we kick off our series by exploring the decade of the 20s. What things should you be focusing on during this decade to help set you up well for the next stage of life and beyond? We're joined by Paul Tokunaga, a Cal Poly Tech alum, former staff, and founder and CEO of MELD, a company leading the way in multi-ethnic leadership development. Paul's going to give us an overview of his leadership development through the decades framework, and then we're going to zoom in on the 20s specifically. So, class of 2022, the rest of our recent grads, and any other listeners in your 20s, lean in and learn how to continue thriving throughout this decade. And if you're past your 20s, this is for you too. See if there's anything you didn't do during that time that you could still work on today so that you can continue developing well into the future. All right, let's get rocking. Here's the first ever episode in this new series. (laughs) <laughs> you thought I was going to do it again, didn't you? How to be the post-college goat. And that's because I was. Okay, here's my conversation with Paul Tokunaga. This one's for you, alumni. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, John. Good to be here with you. I'm excited to have you. Paul, can you give us just a quick introduction? Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you've done, what you do now. Well, probably most important. I'm the husband of Margaret. We've been married for 45 years, and we have one child, a son, Sam, and we all live in Atlanta. We are diehard Braves fans, and (laughs) so this is a good time to be a Braves fan. (laughs) I retired last June from InterVarsity, where I served my first 48 years out of college. I'm currently the founder and president of MELD, which stands for Multi-Ethnic Leadership Development. We collaborate with senior leaders of organizations to drive change in the diversity of their organizations. We do this by providing clear, personalized expertise to identify the causes of each organization's diversity issues. And we do this primarily through three means, executive coaching, strategic planning, and impactful training. And our website is meldnow, M-E-L-D-N-O-W dot com, if anyone wants to check us out. When did you start MELD? Started it in 2017. So actually next month, we'll celebrate our fifth anniversary as a LLC. Well, that's exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. 
As you said, you spent your first 48 years out of college with InterVarsity. You've gotten to operate in a few different places, and there's many different things that you've developed along the way. The one that I invited you here to help us walk through is this framework for leadership through the decades. So, Paul, can you just give us a little bit of an overview? What, what is the purpose of this framework, and what prompted you to develop it? Since my undergraduate days, I went to college at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, since those days, I've wanted to become a better leader. And in the process, I also wanted to help my fellow students to grow in their abilities to lead well. And since then, I think I've viewed life as a leadership development laboratory. And in this lifetime lab, I continually ask myself, what kinds of things do I do well? How can I get better at those things? And what things am I just mediocre at? And instead of investing a lot of time and energy improving those things, I step aside because I know there are others who are better at it than me. And my job is simply to affirm them. So somewhere in my 40s, I started thinking, what did I work on in my 20s that seemed to accelerate my growth as a leader? And at the same time, I reflected on what things did I not work on? that I wish I had worked on in my 20s? And what black holes did I fall into or rabbit trails I pursued that sidetracked my development as a leader? And then I started asking the same kind of questions of my 30s. And somewhere along the way, I was asked to do a workshop on leadership development. And I decided to use each decade as a framework for that workshop, starting with the decade of the 20s. And as I got older, I kept adding decades on. And the one I lead now actually addresses the decade of the 70s, of which I am a new member of. You know, there's nothing magical or mystical about this framework. Not everyone in their 20s needs to address all these things that I talk about in that decade of the 20s. And sometimes someone in their 40s during a workshop, they'll say, man, I totally miss those things that you talked about that I should have worked on my 30s. Is it okay to work on those things in my 40s or is it too late for me? Of course, it's never too late to work on these things because life is not as linear as this framework is. But I think the framework does try to identify things that seem to ring true for most people in each particular decade. So it sounds like these are guidelines, not necessarily hard and fast rules, a framework that's got some space to move, whether you're in that decade or not. You can also be a little further down the road and you can look back and say, oh, actually, there's some things there that I could use some work on today from my 20s, even though I'm in my 30s or 40s now. Absolutely. Well, the vast majority of our listenership is in their 20s and 30s. So right now, today, we're going to start talking about the 20s. And I'd like to know, Paul, what is the primary focus of our 20s? In a nutshell, John, it's experimenting. It's trying out a lot of different things and doing things in different ways. And then in the process, begin to figure out our strengths and our weaknesses. So in your 20s, you're not expected to perform in a sustained way that allows us to be on the same playing field as someone in their 30s or 40s. Food analogies work really well for me. Oh, I love them. Bring them on. So here's a food analogy for the decade of the 20s. Picture life in your 20s as the Bacchanal Buffet in Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. You cruise to different stations. You grab a little sushi. You take some prime rib. Medium rare, thank you. You get some oysters <laughs> on the half shell. You sample maybe 12 dishes. And why do you sample 12 dishes? Because you can. And that's what I think of the 20s. Is it time to sample, to try different things? You're in your 20s. You don't have a lot to lose. You experiment. 
See, that's interesting to me because I would think for somebody that's coming out of college, they've spent all this time sort of studying in a particular area. And I wonder if the natural progression for them, at least in their mind is, okay, now it's time for me to focus in on the things that I've been studying and to start applying those things to zoom in their focus because they've spent this time studying. But you're saying that the 20s, this is a time for expanding your horizons. Don't start narrowing things too quickly as far as the options that are in front of you. Yeah, I've talked to too many people in their 20s who graduate from college and they'll tell me, you know, I have a major in blank, but I don't really want to go into that. And they'd give me the reasons why they chose that major. Some of it was parental pressure. Some of it was that they did well in that in high school. Others were like, gee, I have no idea. I had to pick something. So I picked this. And so it's not always the thing that they have a high aptitude for or even passion for. So I think it's a good thing, a healthy thing in your 20s to open the lid of the can and say, perhaps I will go into this, but why don't I use the 20s to explore some other things, things that I've always wondered about, or maybe I dabbled in, or maybe I minored in, or maybe it was an extracurricular activity in college that, truth be told, I loved it more than what I majored in. Maybe I should pay attention to those things and just see where it leads. There's not a lot to lose in your 20s by doing that. And then I think as you go on, you just get a stronger sense of either, yeah, this is me, this is it. Or it's like, eh, it's not what I thought it would be. Maybe it'll be a hobby someday or something I'll pursue 20 years from now, but it's not for me. But at least explore and pursue those kinds of things. For me, it sort of happened by pure happenstance that I stumbled into a number of different things and got to test out. You know, I got my master's degree in clinical psychology and I was going to go on to a PhD, but that didn't work out. So I was going to take an interim year to build my Vita and then reapply. And so in the interim, I did some teaching and it was during that time of teaching that I found out, oh, I actually really love being in front of a group and teaching like this. This is a lot of fun. And at the same time, I was getting some experience volunteering with InterVarsity on campus and then did a little bit of both at the same time and then moved into full-time staff work. And that staff work has taken me down different roads within that. And so there's all those places where you do things that sometimes you don't even intend to do. And you start discovering some of these giftings or things that you just really enjoy. Maybe it's not your full-time gig, but it might be something that brings life to you. Paul, as you think about our alumni who are stepping out into this post-college life, this new world, these new experiences, as far as testing out lots of different things, experimenting, what does it look like practically? Can I mention some of the things that I did in my 20s? Yeah, please do. (laughs) (laughs) So I started a list and the list got a little long. Here's some things that I did in my 20s to explore different areas. A couple of years out of college, I coached a Little League baseball team. I'm pretty sure they made a movie after watching us play called The Bad News Bears, but it was a fantastic experience working with kids. Around the same time, I was developing my social conscience. The United Farm Workers were having a lettuce and grape boycott, and they needed neighborhood organizers. So I raised my hand. I said, I'll be a neighborhood organizer. I led workshops in my 20s on things like singleness. You know, what did I know about it? (laughs) Fortunately, I was paired with a woman who was 60, so we balanced each other out. And the other thing was racial reconciliation. I didn't know that much about it. Again, I was paired with someone much older and seasoned, and he kind of brought me along and coached me. I did open-air preaching on college campuses in Florida. 
one of the scariest things I've ever done, but maybe one of the most helpful things I've ever done in developing as a speaker. I wrote a children's story in my 20s that was part English and part Spanish, and it was based on the parable of the prodigal son, and it was set in the barrio. I took up a new sport in my 20s, racquetball, and I briefly considered going pro. I tried to write a fiction book in the style of Ray Bradbury, and I never finished the first chapter because it was so bad. I backpacked for seven days in the Sierra Nevadas, first time I've ever backpacked, maybe the last time. <laughs> I dated a white woman from the Deep South. So those are just the things that I did that came to mind. So a whole variety of things, and I love my 20s. Now, I imagine as you test out all of these things, there has to be some amount of failure that you just expect. Can we talk about failure just a little bit, Paul? Oh, yeah. Well, failure was having a Little League baseball team that was like 3-17. and 17. <laughs> And in the middle of the season, one of the parents tried to get me fired as a manager because I was doing such an awful job. I'd call that pretty good failure. But I, you know, I learned a lot. I was brought up in the public school system, and most of these boys were from private schools and well-to-do families, and I had not had much experience with either of those worlds. So it was great exposure for me. You know, one thing in experimenting with all these kinds of things, John, is as I enter my 30s, it gave me a clearer sense of what I wanted to do in my 30s. It was like a winnowing, what are some of these things I want to hold on to and keep doing in my 30s and maybe, you know, beyond my 30s. So it sounds like part of the purpose of being open, experimenting with lots of different leadership styles and working and having fun as well, there's a broadening so that those things can be focused and that that's happening as you're moving from 20s into 30s. I have another question about failure. Knowing that failure is a part of life as we develop in our 20s, how would you counsel someone who is maybe paralyzed by the fear of failure or just has that thought of like, I must get this right? How would you counsel someone in their 20s that is afraid of the idea of failure? I think overall, John, failing in your 20s usually has less deep and long-term consequences than when you fail later in your life. Let's say you're single in your 20s, you get fired. So what do you do? You learn all you can from it, you swallow some humble pie, and you hit the streets for your next job. It's not the end of the world. The key thing, and this is where some people lose out, is they want to block out that past experience and move on to the next thing because it's going to be better. It's going to be different. And that was a hiccup for me. I think that's a mistake. I think whatever we come out of successes or failures, we should give some reflection to what did I do in that position that went well? What did I do in that position that, let's say I got fired, that got me fired? And we may not agree 100% with why we were fired, but there's always some elements of truth in there. It's important to look at those and in the clear light of day ask, what did I do wrong? Where did I not get the job done? And how can I grow and learn from those experiences? Sounds like there's maybe a need for reframing failure, what failure means. If you fail at something, it does not mean that you are a failure. This is not something that defines you internally as somebody who just can't get things right. And also that failure is something that we can learn really important information from. There's data to be gathered from failure that can help us sort of fill in the gaps for our next steps. Absolutely. And one of the dangerous things, I think, is when we decide to just move on too quickly, 
What happens, I think, is sometimes we just get bitter about what we went through. We start pointing the fingers at other people. It was their fault, not my fault. We start playing the blame game, and then we just quickly move on. Operating that way will just backfire on you. Paul, opposite end of the spectrum, let's talk about people that are especially ambitious. Knowing that we're in a world where being an influencer, being Instagram famous, YouTube famous, TikTok famous, being at the center of some growing tech giant, making lots of money, where that seems more accessible than they've ever been, more possible. How would you counsel our alumni who want to be at the center of worlds like that? Well, I'll just speak from personal experience. At my core, I'm a very ambitious person. When I got to college, I became a journalism major. I was in print journalism. And my sophomore year, I was invited to the California Intercollegiate Press Association annual convention, and they had a competition on site. And I won the on-site feature writing competition for the schools in the state of California. I shook hands with Miss California, and I thought, this is it. I'm on my way. And if you would have said, on your way to what? I said, I'm on my way to becoming the best writer, period. And this is just one step along the way. I just started taking as many writing courses, taking on new assignments in writing, several editorial positions for the paper, on and on. And then somewhere along the way, people got in the way, people who needed Jesus in their lives. And that really messed up my ambition because <laughs> it was like God was saying to me, okay, what's it going to be, Paul, me or that gold press card you won in Sacramento, which symbolized your ambition to be the best. I was dying to win a Pulitzer Prize, and I thought I was on my way. I guess you could say this has become a lie first for me, but it became real during that time. It's in Mark 8, 34 through 37. I'll just read them if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Jesus called the crowd with his disciples. He said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who will lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? And I was trying to gain the whole world. And slowly I began to realize I'm going to forfeit my life in the process. So I understand ambition personally. I would say it's important if you're very ambitious to ask the question, what's your motive here? And then peel back several layers of your answer until you get to the heart of your true motive. And then ask yourself, what is it going to cost me to achieve this in terms of my relationship, my family? What's it going to cost in terms of my soul if I go after this thing? Those feel like some very serious questions to be wrestling with so early in life. But that also seems like what an incredibly strategic time to be asking those questions, to not kick the can of motivation down the road and ask these things when you have a bigger family or when you're further invested in something than to find out that your motives have not been beneficial for you or for the people around you. The 20s seem like a great time to start asking and exploring those questions of why am I motivated to do what I want to do here? And you know, John, where the rubber met the road for me was the most important thing in my life was having my father say he was proud of me because I did a number of things that didn't make him proud of me. Joining the university staff was one of them. And then all along the way, he would encourage me to do something else, really anything else but ministry. I come from a Buddhist home. And one of the hardest things in my life was never hearing my father say to me, 
even to the day he died, Paul, I'm proud of you. And I had to decide that's going to be a cross that I have to carry if I'm going to follow Jesus. I need to be willing to give up having my father proud of me. I remember once a Christian leader asked me, he was speaking at a conference I was at, and we had a coffee break, and he just kind of nonchalantly asked me, Paul, is your dad proud of you? I was in my 30s, and I just broke down weeping because I realized, I don't think he is. And then it hit me how important that was to me, and that this is what I'm going to have to give up. Sorry to get so dramatic here. <laughs> no, no, this is this is real life right here. I appreciate you sharing that, Paul, because I think that gives us a very real life example of what does it look like to examine our motivations and to discern, is there something that I need to let go of here? And that sometimes that can be like having parental approval and having your parents be proud of you. That sounds like a good thing. Yeah, I want my parents to be proud of me, of course. But to say for some of you, this is what it looks like to release motivations that are not going to perpetuate something good, something kingdom oriented. If you are constantly in pursuit of the pride of your parents, at what cost? At what cost are you willing to pursue that? And it may be a cost that's far too expensive for us to pay or for someone else to pay for us. Thank you for sharing that. I think it gives us a very real example of what it looks like to examine our motivations. Paul, I know that there's a resource that you recommend for particularly ambitious people to start reading The Inner Ring by C.S. Lewis. Can you tell us just a little bit about that resource, why that's something useful to look into? Yeah, it's simply an essay found in a little volume he wrote called The Weight of Glory. And I had a very astute boss early on in my early 20s who saw that I was struggling with ambition. And he kind of nonchalant ways had this book and he said, hey, you might want to read this. It might be helpful. <laughs> and after I read it, I thought, helpful, nothing. This is going to turn my life around if I follow it. Because it questions, what are you living for? What are your values? What's important to you? And how do you choose your friends? Big important question. When I lead senior leadership training cohorts, it's mandatory reading before they start. You can Google it. It's really about a 15-minute read, but it's really, really powerful. Maybe we'll find a link for that and put it in the show notes so people can access it really easily. So, Paul, as we're thinking about motivations, as we're thinking about exploration, trying lots of different things, it seems to me that maybe there's some guardrails that might be needed as we're exploring and asking these kinds of questions. Are there personal disciplines that we should be considering that are particularly helpful in our 20s alongside of this experimentation, exploration that we're doing? You know, one thing that I think is really important is to develop a solid devotional life. In college, if you're a believer and you're in a Christian organization, you're surrounded by like-minded people. People who are encouraging you, how's your quiet time going? How's things with Jesus? When you get away from that, you're not going to have as many people usually around you who are going to ask those questions. So you have to be really intentional in your 20s to say, that was important to me in college. It's got to be equally important, if not more important, as a young adult. And you might have different spiritual disciplines, but to have a regular, intentional, devotional life is important. I appreciate the fact that you identify that that might look different. I think it's really easy for us to try to shoehorn what our college spiritual rhythms look like into our post-college life and to acknowledge you're in pursuit of health, a healthy devotional life. And that's going to probably look different because your time is going to look different than what it did before. 
be in pursuit of a healthy devotional life, whatever that looks like for this season, because then that trains you for adjusting it for the next season as well, to know that this just changes. It's something that is fluid and needs to keep developing. What you're in pursuit of is health and consistency. Are there other things that you would recommend, other personal disciplines or pursuits that we should be doing during our 20s? Yeah, one thing I wanted to mention, and this made the list fairly recently, for lack of a different term, I just said, name and own your demons. And I define demons as things like an addicting sin, an idol in your life. It might be a secret that haunts you. It might be a skeleton in your inner closet. It's a foe who fights you for Jesus's lordship of your life. It's not the kind of thing that you're probably going to share with a lot of people. Maybe you've never shared it with anyone else because it's too personal, or maybe it's too embarrassing, too humiliating. Maybe if you go back and revisit it, the idea of it just scares you to death. But it's important to name and own your demons and then proactively battle them. The sooner you can identify them, the better, I think. Again, it feels like here in the 20s, you're exploring, exploring out in the world, but also a lot of self-exploration and asking big questions about who you are, what motivates you, what are the things going on in the background that maybe you're not even aware of, people around you might not be aware of, and what does it look like to start proactively assessing and removing the things that are just not helpful? Do it now in your 20s. It's going to be much easier than 10, 20, 30 years down the road when those things are even more deep-seated than they were in your 20s. Yeah, to use a gardening analogy, it's like pulling the weeds out when they're three inches high. Later on, they're going to be a foot high, two feet high. The roots are going to go deeper. They're going to be harder to yank out. Get them while they're fresh, when they're easier to pull out, because the longer you live with those demons, the more entrenched in your soul and your heart they're going to get. Paul, all of these things we've been talking about, it feels like there's a lot of really practical, useful advice, helpful tools that you've been giving to us. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on yet that needs to be said? Yeah, here's what I would say, John. Try something that you've never done before that when you're in your 70s, you will impress the heck out of your grandchildren. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds awesome. They're going to go, you were so cool. You did that. (laughs) If that was the case, that would be the first people in my life to ever say I was so cool. (laughs) But I like that idea very much. Paul, thank you so much for talking through this very important decade. There are many of our listeners that this is the life that they are living right now. And so (laughs) I'm hopeful that this will be beneficial for them. And I'm excited for us to chat some more down the road here about the 30s as well. So thanks for joining us today, Paul. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Great to be with you. And we'll see you in our 30s. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. Any fans of The Office out there listening to this episode? In season five, when Stanley has a heart attack at work, Michael says this about the experience in a talking head. I knew exactly what to do, but in a much more real sense, I had no idea what to do. Now, in many situations, I would draw your attention to Michael Scott as an example of how not to live your life or interact with other humans. But as a frame for success in our 20s, this quote really seems to nail it. Based on Paul's advice, we know exactly what to do in our 20s experiment, try new things, take advantage of the flexibility that you have to experience things that you might not be able to experience later on in life. But at the same time, you may realize in a very real way that you have no idea what you're doing once you get there. And that's okay. It's all part of an extremely valuable learning process. When I was getting my master's degree, I had to get a certain number of practicum hours in a clinical setting. 
I chose skills training with elementary and middle school aged kids and their parents. Things like anger management, following instructions, and boundary setting. I had no idea what I was doing and the training was minimal. It took me about half a session to realize that I did not like this kind of work. So I gutted it out until my hours were done and I never went back to it or anything like it again. Fast forward to the end of my program. As I mentioned in my conversation with Paul, I did some teaching after graduation. I was given an intro to psych class at the university. It was a three-hour night class with 100 plus students. Just like my practicum, I had no idea what I was doing and had minimal training. However, different from my practicum, halfway through my first class, I knew that I really enjoyed the work. I got to do it for three years after that, and it was a blast. And that's the way it goes in your 20s. You know what to do. Say yes and experience lots of opportunities to develop. And in a very real sense, you have no idea what to do. They will be brand new experiences. Some of them will totally suck and then you'll move on, but some of them will be amazing and you'll have found something important to hold on to. Paul, thanks so much for joining us this week. This was invaluable information for having a solid experience post-graduation. If you want to see Paul's brief outline for the 20s, take a look at the show notes. It's posted there. That's it for this week. Later on this summer, we'll hear from Paul again about our 30s, so stay tuned for more information about that. But for next time, we continue our series... How to be the post-college goat. Sorry, I had to do it one more time. We continue our series with Steve, an alum from Normandale Community College in Minneapolis. He's a pastor and is going to give us some tools for finding a church community. The interview portion of the episode is a revisit from a conversation from a year ago, but the information was so practical that it seemed wrong to not include it in this series. You don't want to miss it, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast, turn on notifications, and be a pal and share with your friends. You can also follow us on socials at After4Pod. Now, this podcast is for you, alumni, but if you want to help us out as well, you could do two simple things. First, set your episodes to download automatically. And second, if you're able, leave a rating and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. All right, as always, it's been great hanging out. Until next week, I'll see you in the after, alumni. How to be the post-college goat.